Hi, this is Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson. And we're here to introduce a special series of Last Night at School Committee, focused on the search for a new superintendent of the Boston Public Schools. It's seven episodes, including a compilation of views that we heard from 14 important community leaders in Boston. And individual interviews with the past six superintendents of Boston, including Tommy Chang and Brenda Casilius. We ask these guests their views on the type of leader that Boston needs now and the priorities for our public school system. The question is, Ross, who will be successful in the role? Yes, and what can Bostonians do to make the next superintendent's term impactful and successful? Today, Ross and I are joined by Tommy Chang, who served as superintendent of Boston Public Schools from 2015 to 2018. Tommy Chang, it is so wonderful to see you. We hear you're coming to us from Thailand. That's correct. Have you been traveling for a while? Yeah, I've been on the road for nine months now, since July 2021. I've been traveling Latin America and now Southeast Asia. That's amazing. I believe it's very early in the morning there. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And we'll get to your travels at the end of the interview. But we wanted to start, Tommy, by really talking about your experience in Boston as superintendent. You were superintendent from 2015 to 2018. What did you love about the city of Boston and what do you miss the most? So I have a special place in my heart for Boston. I had spent pretty much my entire life living in Southern California until I went to Boston to serve as its superintendent. So the transition from West Coast to East Coast was quite dramatic, going from warm weather to cold weather and going from Lakers Nation to the city that loves its Celtics and Patriots. And as a like avid sports fan, I really appreciate a city that I just like absolutely obsessed with its pro sports <laughs> teams. But that's just the passion of the city. And like, you just got to appreciate it, almost like giggle at it. If you're in the middle of a crowd and you wanted uh, applause, all you have to say is something positive about the Red Sox or Patriots <laughs> and you get a rousing ovation. They don't care about what you think about it. Exam school policies, they care that you love the Red Sox. Tommy, number one tip for a new superintendent, when it gets tough, just say something about the sports teams. Say right? Red Sox, everything be fine. Celtics, right. Bruins. Hey, Tommy, you know, I just got back from the West Coast and I feel like culturally they're very different places. And, and so what was it like to come from somewhere else, especially a sunny, warm place to Boston? What did it feel different? I think the thing that was that I underappreciated was how much everyone was involved in education and politics. It really is the life of the city. People do education, do politics, not only as their career choice, but literally their passion. And they do it 24-7. I underappreciated how people were so networked. I mean, living in Boston, it's not seven degrees of separation. Literally, it's like one to two degrees of separation. Everybody knows everybody. In a city like Los Angeles, it's just not that way. You can get lost. You can go out and have dinner and nobody noticing you. Yeah, that's true. You're such a figure when you show up somewhere in Boston as the superintendent of schools. It's a very big deal. Mm -hmm. It was really hard to have dinner, especially in a neighborhood spot. And I lived in Rosendale without somebody coming up to you. And usually interactions are positive. The 5% where it wasn't so positive, you don't necessarily go home feeling so warm and fuzzy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where's my bus? Why, why can't it come on time? What's going on? I actually remember 
one of my first public activities, I was doing this like neighborhood walk. And it was for like one of these promoting physical fitness thing. And literally somebody did come up to me and ask if they could change their school assignments. And this was before school started. And of course I was, just, I was way over my head. It was more like, here's my business card. Call me. But of course <laughs> that's. Yeah. You're like, sure. Just tell me which one. And yeah. I'll just write it down on my pad. Which here. of the 54,000 <laughs> students are you? It is a very intimate city. Tommy, you did some incredible things when you were superintendent in Boston. And just talk about some of the things you're most proud of and what you accomplished. Yeah, I really need to thank the people who, the superintendents that came before me, who really set things up for me to do some really positive work for the school system. I mean, specifically, I want to thank uh, John McDonough. I mean, this work really is about building on the work of your predecessors. We stand on the shoulders of others. And so for John, when I came into Boston, he had just commissioned an Annenberg study that looked at opportunity and achievement gaps in Boston. Because of that, I was able to center my time there around issues of equity. I mean, some highlights, including putting a new teaching learning framework together, which are called the Essentials for Instructional Equity. We were able to build dual language programming in the school system, specifically the one that still brings me to tears is the Haitian Creole program at the Manhattan. I remember being in there the first week of the launch of that program and having that teacher say, like, I grew up in this city. I, this was a program I wanted to teach in. I want to help launch this because this is the first time where my language, my identity has been so affirmed by the school system. And I think the work with excellence for all uh, was really powerful. Wait, can you guys talk a little bit about that? Because that was a major shift. The dual language program at the Matahunt was just recently bought up at the last school committee meeting. And there was a community activist who was talking about the power of that program. And so that is still going really strong. And then the excellence for all was this huge issue of advanced work class right. and saying, look, we, we start testing kids and sorting kids at grade three. Why shouldn't all kids have access to the same education that kids would test in to get? Why not everybody have that, right? So if they're getting access to higher level content, if they're getting access to another language, which they were, Tommy put in it, basically said, look, why is this for some kids and not for all kids? That was the start of excellence for all. Yeah, I, I remember when I first got to Boston, elementary schools that had both AWC classes and non-AWC classes. Literally, you can go down a hallway, look to your left into the AWC classrooms and look to the right to the, in the AWC classrooms. And they, you would think you were in two different schools, two different school systems, two different communities, two different neighborhoods. I remember the debates around this. And I think why, there was a major lesson for me in that work. And I'm going to share that with you in a second. But I wanted to build a case that, as Ross said, like, you know, more kids, all kids should have access to rigorous curriculum, enrichment activities such as arts and languages and the sciences. But the system and the community was holding on to this advanced work class. Thing. They did not want to let it go. And in my mind, it was, I was like, oh, we need to dismantle AWC. We need to dismantle AWC. I remember 
going to a school committee meeting and showing my third grade standardized exam scores, which my mom still kept. My mom like, keeps <laughs> everything of mine from my, my years in K-12. And I showed that and said, look, I would not have tested into AWC, but I did fine in life. And so in my yeah. mind, I was like, let's dismantle it. But it was actually meetings with parents who said to me, and said to our team, actually, and Ross, you were part of that team, like, yep. this is all we have. Don't take this away from us. And it was a big light bulb. It was like, no, why are we trying to take away great things for parents and great things for kids? Let's make sure more kids have this. So we instituted excellence for all. And my understanding is that parents really just voted with their feet. And schools that have now excellence for all, they're not leaving for AWC classes. And I, I, my understanding is AWC classes have slowly kind of gone away. There's, a, there's only a handful left, Tommy. There's been a lot of conversation about, let's just get all the way there. Every school should have excellence for all. And that's just the way it should be. This point, though, is a really critical point because it's, the superintendents before each other superintendent yeah, that I set the that. stage, yeah. right? For superintendents to be so successful in their right. key initiatives. Right. Tommy set the stage. We've had a few superintendents since Tommy. Um, and now all of a sudden we're almost there, right? We're almost all the way there. But it takes time for these initiatives to take place. Tommy, do you think there is just a natural timeout on a superintendency? Or do you think it would be good for Boston to think about a superintendent being here for a decade versus, you know, two, three years. You see this nationally. Like, unfortunately, there is this pattern of like superintendents going in and out of systems. But there are also places where superintendents have been being able to sustain work over long periods of time. And it's dramatic. I mean, think about people like Eric Gordon in Cleveland, Barbara Jenkins, who just announced her retirement in Orange County, Florida. And Alberto Carvalho was in Miami for 13 years before he took on LA. And they have been able to build up programs over the years. I hope it can happen for Boston. I'm actually very optimistic it can be because Boston actually has a history. Before the recent stretch of like five, six superintendents, they had a history. Carol was Dr. Johnson was the superintendent for eight years, I believe, and Tom Paisan was the superintendent for 10 years. I think it, it, it can happen again. Part of it is just kind of nature of life in general in 2022, but I think it's still possible. Tell me, what unfinished work did you have in Boston? What, what did you wish you would have been able to accomplish if you were given more time to accomplish it? Yeah, I think all the work around equity is not just a work of one superintendent. It's obviously a work of many uh, leaders over decades. But I wish I would have had a chance to stay a little bit longer, especially to grow out the dual language programming. I would have loved to actually be there and to see Excellence for All get to a finish line. But the thing that really stands out for me really is a bit of a reframe of your question, if I may. It's something I did, which I wish I would have taken a lot more time to do, which was the whole thing around start times. Oh, start times. Yeah. I mean, this whole start time conversation first came to the school committee and to the team because it was a lot of national conversation about moving high school start times later and elementary school times earlier. But as you both know very well, start times 
are so intertwined with bus schedules in the city of Boston because Boston moves its elementary kids around the city as a way to ensure that everybody has access to the best schools. And because there isn't equitable quality throughout the city, it requires you to bus kids everywhere. And it's a very expensive part of the budget, 7% of the budget, right? And start times are totally intertwined with that. And so because of that, there are three start times in Boston, 7.30, 8.30, Some elementary schools start as early as 7.15. Others start as late as 9.30. I think the untold story in all this was we actually broke down the start times by racial demographics. We saw 80% of white children in Boston had the prime start time at 8.30 and 20% of Black students had the prime start time at 8.30. Also, during that time, there was so much pressure to cut down on costs with transportation. We thought changing the start times, optimizing bus schedules would be a way to kind of create more equity, cut down on costs, reinvest in programming. But the big mistake, honestly, was like, we forced this down people's throats. It was unfair to families to implement this over a course of literally one year. And while the goals were the right goals to create more equity around start times to like reinvest dollars from transportation to other programming, it just wasn't fair to say to parents, okay, this is March. We're going to let you know what the start times will be for your children next year. It just wasn't fair. So, and do you think that's specific to the city that it just takes time to get buy-in because people are so involved or it just takes time because change is hard? I think it's when you impact people's routines, you are going to get a reaction. It's not just a Boston thing. If this was done in any other city, we would have gotten the same sort of reaction. We should have taken our time. We should have communicated what we wanted to do. We should have shown the different start times and literally say in three or five years, we're going to fully implement. But this would give parents opportunities to really think about to choose the right schools for their children based on start times in three years rather than next year. That's a great point. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Tommy. That's a, that's a, that's yeah, a great that's point. That's great. All right, Tommy, the five attributes that you think are most important in the next superintendent in the city of Boston? I think number one, and you mentioned John McDonough mentioning this, I think it's critical to partner with principals. Now, I think of BPS as a system of individual schools rather than like a school system, a group of schools all working together. It embraced autonomy 10, 15 years ago, and like it's in its DNA. As a superintendent, you got to work very closely with your principals. You got to build relationships with them. You have to visit their schools often. You got to listen and figure out what they need. And in particular, because there is such inequity among schools, you really need to understand how you help the schools that are least resourced. So I think that's really important, like partnering with principals. That's what actually, in reality, not all people who become superintendents are trained in systems like that. This really is a system of individual schools. The second thing 
gotta know how to say no. Now, everybody's got an opinion. Ultimately, you and the school committee are the ones that are making the final calls. So you've got to understand how to politely say thank you, but no, this is what we're going to do instead. And why is it you're going to do that? It requires you as a leader to prioritize fewer things. Uh, we talk, I talked about start times earlier. Start times w- was not on my strategic plan. Never thought to do it. But it came up as a, a perceived opportunity. And because there was a lot of pressure to like get costs under control with transportation, we went for it. It was a mistake. So that's the second thing. I think for me, a third thing is it would be great if the next superintendent had a deep connection with the Latino community, either being Latino himself or herself, or has spent his or her entire career working with Latino, the Latino community. And the, the Latino community in Boston is it's significant. I believe it's over 40% now. It was 40% when I was there. I think it's significantly over 40% now. I'll name one more, like I thought about. I think you've got to love the external work. Now, I came in as superintendent thinking I was actually going to run the school system. You're not running the system. Your team really is running the system day to day, right? Like your day is spent building relationships with the community, with the staff of over 10,000, with the school committee, with city hall, with the state both on the legislature side and also with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And then I haven't even gotten to schools. So there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions. You got to know that's ultimately your number one priority. Number one priority is to be out there externally. You're not going to have the time like running the system as you think you would. So you need a good team. You need to be able to hire a good team. Yeah, you got to have a team that's, it's, it's, I think it's beyond trust. It's the team that really knows their stuff so they can actually make the decisions. You can't make every decision. You got to, people have to make decisions and you, they can only make it if they feel competent enough in themselves to make those calls. I'm so curious through your eyes and through your vantage point for folks who are out seeking a new role as a superintendent, looking at superintendent positions that are open, and I think there are many across the country right now, how much has the pandemic brought to the position or to the district that's shifted the responsibilities or where you start or how you focus or how easy or hard it is to lead? Have the past two years had a significant impact on what's needed kind of across the country, specifically in Boston right now? Everybody's tired. Yeah. There needs to be an opportunity to just heal. People just need some rest and some healing. People are just way too on edge right now. Until we heal, I don't believe we're going to be able to deal with some of the biggest issues right now in public education. I'm thinking about like social emotional health, massive achievement gaps, young people who aren't able to read teachers and principals and system leaders who are quitting. 
We just need to pause and heal. And that just requires a different leader. We have to inspire the next generation of young people to look at education as a career path. It's hard to build that case at this moment. And we've got to build, rebuild back that trust. If not, it's, we already are in a crisis and we're just going to dig ourselves deeper. What advice do you have to the Boston community and how to support whoever is chosen to be the next superintendent? What can we do to support that person? I think you've got to give this next leader some time to like just evaluate, learn the system and set a number of key priorities over three to five years. And like, Oof, patience, Tommy. That's a, patience. That's a tough that one. is, I know. You've met know, people here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think the key is like after a year to like evaluate and set priorities, like hold that person accountable for those priorities. The community needs to hold a leader accountable, but hold a leader accountable for a few things, not everything, and hold them accountable for communicating very clear about what those priorities are, hold them accountable for giving regular updates, hold that person accountable for that rather than like, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this because it affects my life. No human being can do everything. Okay, Tommy, you've spent the past almost a year traveling the world, which is an incredible gift to be able to spend the time that you have on your travels. What have you learned during these travels? And how has this travel helped you to prepare for the next role that you will take in in education? Because we're desperately awaiting your return back to education in the United States. Well, I will say I am re-centered and reinvigorated in a way I haven't been in years. So I am actually really excited to come back to the U.S. and jump back into the work. I think it's time again for me to pick up the baton from somebody and lead. I think that's important. I spent the last nine months really focused on how what I can learn from communities that are foreign to me. The goal has been learning from the wisdom of communities, especially indigenous communities. I've just witnessed how communities have had to come together because schools literally have been shut down. And in the U.S., we complain about schools being shut down, young people not having the services they need. But it is to a different level in the places that we have visited. I mean, some countries, literally schools are just beginning to open up and young people have not had access to technology and Wi-Fi. So they literally have not been at home. I'm very concerned about uh, girls' education. We saw more girls working on the streets, in the markets, cleaning hotel rooms than ever before and definitely more than boys. So a lot of concern about that. But I've also been really inspired because we've met with educators and entrepreneurs who are really taking on innovative approaches to solving these sort of problems. And I said, learning from the wisdom of indigenous communities, like these communities have persisted through centuries of colonization, marginalization. They've persisted through previous pandemics, but they've been able to sustain their culture and their wisdom. And I think one of the key lessons and a shaman in Cusco talked about this, like, don't 
go looking for the things that you want. Put your intent out there, and when the, with the right time, it will come. And it's this lessons around patience and thinking about the work through many generations. And like, there's this phrase which is like, think about how you want to change the next seven generations rather than how you want to change the world in the next day. And really runs counter to this sort of like sense of urgency thing we have in education, which is not a bad thing, but we've got to think about how we're putting the pieces together and like how we bring people along in a journey rather than like this sort of like Rambo type leader. I'm going to go solve this problem and blow everything up while I'm doing it. So. Tommy, I got I to gotta thank you for taking the time to talk with us for your leadership in Boston. Hopefully you have safe travels back to the States. See what happens next. I appreciate that, Ross. And Jill, thank you. Thank you for your comments. And this was fun. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Tommy Chang. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. To listen to this full special series of Last Night at School Committee and to view video content, visit bostonsuperintendent.com. Tune in tomorrow for our conversation with former interim superintendent, Laura Perel. Have a great day.